One might think from the last few weeks here at Trinity that Steve is like trying to get known by Hollywood or something. He's become, <laughs> become the star of every one of our videos, but uh, a great video and, and moving you hopefully beyond laughter to checking out our small group expo. We'll tell you more about that in a minute. I want to introduce you to Jenny Stevenson. Would you say hello to her? Very good. Good job. Some people typically say hello by clapping, so it's good to know now that you know that. Um, but I wanted you to hear a little bit of Jenny's story today, and it's uh, very powerful. It's a great example of God on the move in our lives, and there's so many stories even right here in this worship center today. But I want you to hear Jenny's. Jenny, maybe you can begin by just giving everyone kind of a snapshot of life now related to family and a little bit about you that way. So my family and I moved here about two years ago from Utah. Um, my husband Justin and I have been married for nine years. We have four kids. Um, Amaya is 13. Micah is eight. Naomi, I'm forgetting my kids. Naomi <laughs> is six. And Tatum is four. It's those curveball questions. You're like, right, are you kidding? I know, you yeah. were going to ask me that? <laughs> I have experience in that. That's for another day. Um, so tell us, Jenny, you know, that's family now, kind of a good snapshot of right. where you guys pull back and Let's talk a little bit about the family of origin, kind of paint that picture in broad strokes growing up. Sure. So um, typically, when I was really young, I thought of my family as like the typical nuclear family, um, a military family anyway. My um, dad was in the Air Force, uh, so he was from Maryland. My mom was from Germany, and uh, most of my siblings and I were born in Japan. Um, typical, yeah, typical, right? right? That's right. It's it was very typical, typical to me. <laughs> Um, so when I was about four, we moved back to the States and we moved to Utah. Um, and at a young age, I really began to see some cracks in my family. And I realized that my dad had a drinking problem, um, which just grew in intensity as time went on. So um, over the years, he attempted to um, seek treatment and help for his alcoholism. And it was just never effective. So um, that led to uh, a couple of times my mom had to take my five siblings and I and go live in a women and children's shelter because it just wasn't safe at home. Um, I remember a particular time we were living in a shelter. It was probably three or, three or four miles away from the school that I went to. And uh, so my mom had to get us all up early. We didn't have a vehicle, so we had to walk all that way. And that's not that big of a distance now, but when you're, you know, five, that's a long way to walk. And so I remember just crying and not wanting to make that walk and just wishing that I was in a wheelchair because that would be so much easier. Somebody could just push me. <laughs> yeah, short-sighted. Um, so sometime after that, my parents finally separated and they had the hopes that my dad would be able to get better and they could reconcile and that just never happened. Um, when I was about six, my dad suddenly died of an aortic aneurysm and left my mom to raise all six of us kids on her own with no family around, no real support system, so that was really rough. Um, my mom returned to school so that she could provide for us, and that left us alone um, quite a bit. My sister reminded me of some of the hard times that we went through during that time, um, just not having really much of anything um, my mom would take us around to parks so we could collect aluminum cans so we could recycle and have a little extra money. Um, times were hard where we didn't have much food, and so what we would have for dinner is toast with bacon grease. Um, so that was hard, right? Uh, my older siblings especially struggled in a way that was different than the younger ones, um, and they ended up rebelling and... Um, 
that just, you know, just was really difficult for our family. So I wish I could say at this point that things kind of turned around and we experienced a season of calm, but that didn't really happen. Um, I won't go into real detail about it, but over the next several years, um, there was an affair, a remarriage, a subsequent affair, an eventual divorce, which left my mom really, really broken. Um, and that brings us up to my high school years. So one of the things <clears throat> within that context, there was actually, you guys were involved in local churches, right. and there was kind of a, a friendship, a unique relationship that formed with like a sister-like right. character. Tell us a little bit about her. Okay. So we did always grow up going to church, um, and my sisters and I were always in the choir from a young age, and so um, we really enjoyed that. So one of the choir directors, about the time I was in middle school, high school, her name was Nicole, and she was always super kind to me. She just really seemed to have an affection for me and look out for me. Um, I would babysit her kids occasionally. I could talk to her about biblical things that just didn't really seem to make sense to me. Um, and it was just a really comfortable environment. I was never afraid that I would be looked down upon, um, that I could go to her and trust the answers that she, were, that she was giving me were really honest. So um, that was really a great um, influence in my life. Um, she just poured into my life at a time where there were no other real, um, there were no other adults who were consistently a part of our lives since we were away from any other family. So um, she, uh, she even attended my high school graduation, which is a real sign of love right there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> You've been to those, right? No, 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 no. Awesome. So, so God would use Nicole in your life in a, in a real pivotal time as a high school student. But it would be years later, even after that um, disconnection, that God really used her in a very powerful way. Tell us kind of the things that led up to that. Okay. So, like I said, um, high school was just really unstable at home, and by the time I was graduating, I just ne knew that I needed to get away. I, I couldn't take that chaos anymore. And so my choices were join the Air Force or go to college. And so, as brave as I am, I decided to move 45 minutes away and go to college. Um, <laughs> so when I got there, I just was so excited. I had this newfound freedom, and um, I was really looking forward to uh, making my life my own. Um, but it didn't take long before that excitement faded and just exposed the, the great um, lost feeling that I had inside that had always really been there. I think I just had never had um, any time away to realize that it wasn't just a circumstance of my family. It was a deep emptiness that I had. Um, so I, even though I had always grown up in church, right, I knew the basic Bible stories um, I knew a few foundational truths, um, but I had no real strong foundation. I never read the Bible for myself. I always kind of felt like it was one of those things that other people do, and they explain it to me. It wasn't something that I could do on my own. So when I got to this point in my life where I felt like I needed some real direction, I didn't really know how to turn to God. So instead of turning to God, I turned to the first person who showed a real sincere interest in me, and unfortunately, that person wasn't a believer of um, the Jesus of the Bible, right? Um, so at the end of my freshman year in college, I found out I was pregnant and absolutely terrified. Um, neither of us really knew what to do, but I knew for certain that I would keep my baby. Um, so we decided to take the summer to kind of figure things out. And um, somewhere 
I, I kind of decided I would go back to my old church, talk to some of the adults that I trusted there and kind of seek their, their counsel. And then somewhere along the lines, I just decided, no, I don't really care what anybody has to say. I'm just going to do things my way. Um, and so December 22nd, 2003, my incredibly beautiful little baby girl was born, and I did not know I could love that deeply. Um, December 24th, um, I was proposed to, and I accepted, and we were excited, and looked forward to this new life together with our little family. And maybe about six weeks later, I remember sitting on the couch, holding my little baby, and the phone rang. So my then-fiancé brought me the phone, and it was um, the old choir director, his name was Nicole. And she just, um, she just asked me how things were going, um, what our future plans were, things like that. And then she started sharing verses with me. Now, I can't remember what those verses were. I just remember God speaking so clearly through that conversation to let me know that if I chose to go ahead with this marriage, I would never be able to live for him the way that he created me to, um, and neither would my children. And I just broke. I just sat there on the phone. I didn't say a word. I just wept. And... Um, that was the beginning of the end of that relationship, and it was one of the most difficult decisions um, I've ever had to go through. Um, and it wasn't, that wasn't even the end, right? Like, life didn't end there. there we continued on, and as difficult and heartbreaking as things were continuing on from that moment, there was never a time that I regretted um, that decision because Jesus is always better. Amen. Would you guys thank Jenny? Thank you so much. I don't know that you can say that any better. Jesus is always better. And he is. And the reason I wanted you to hear Jenny's story today was really twofold. One, it's this powerful story of redemption. Because Jenny told you where she's at today, married to Justin, four kids, and you, if you were to meet her at Trinity Church, you wouldn't know any of the backstory that actually makes that story possible today because of what Jesus has done and been faithful to her. But the other reason I wanted you to hear that today is I wanted you to hear the power once again of influence. Nicole had invested hours and time and graduation attendance in Jenny's life only later on to be able to have this credibility this opportunity from miles away, years later, to speak into her life and to be the, the mouthpiece, the voice box that God would use to touch her at just the right time. That's what we're looking at this month. We're talking about some of the first steps at Trinity. And if you have a Bible today, would you open it? We're in Genesis 1. We're going to begin right at the beginning. And as we do, we have been talking these first two weeks of this Where You Fit at Trinity series on the idea of serving, using your gifts, putting them into place. These last two weeks of August, we're going to instead turn our attention to small groups. And today what we'll look at is just the, the biblical uh, basis, the, why are small groups so important? And we'll find out that it's really not a suggestion. It's really meant to be an imperative, meant to be a directive. This is what you and I ought to engage in. You have notes, by the way, also in your worship folder if you want to get those out have those handy. Those will be really helpful to you. And so what we're looking at today is this idea that since these groups are not a suggestion, 
to live in community. Maybe the application of small groups themselves might not be the issue, but the idea living in a community of other believers and doing life and mission together. That is the directive, and we'll look at that. I just think one of the best expressions of that is what we call a small group. So as we look at this idea, I wanted you to say for, or hear from the very beginning that this concept of being in small groups is something that I don't just speak about, that it's a good idea for you. It's something we do. For Joanna and I, we would say that in our transition from the high desert a year ago, that probably some of the hardest goodbyes, and there were many, we'd spent 14 years there and really sunk roots into that community and in that church. But at the end of that, when we were saying goodbye, it was the hardest to say goodbye to those who were in our family group, people we had done life with for 10 years, watched their kids grow up. They watched our kids grow up. We interacted at a level well beyond simply saying hello at church services on a weekend. And that's, that's what makes this so important. I've lived it. We've lived it. And besides what the Bible is going to teach us to say today, I want you to hear at least as well from personal experience. And that didn't stop. Once we've got here, that was one of the first things on our mind. God, lead us to the right type of group to be involved in because we want to keep doing life and mission together. And our small group began just last January, and it's been so great just in those five months kind of completing that small group season of already the ability to trust one another, the ability to, to really kind of get deep with each other on a personal level. Joanna's commented to me many times, like, we've never seen a group grow that close that fast. And so my words to you today are this, it's worth it. As you came in today, many of you are in small groups of some sort. You can't wait to go get signed up for a new season. But there are also many of you who have so many reasons. You have a catalog of reasons why small groups are not a good idea for you. Rather than me trying to convince you about that, I just want you to hear from God's word today. Let that be the thing that works on you. Look in our now what idea, it's in your notes and on the screen. The biblical directive of how to live toward one another happens in small groups. In community is where those things are played out. Let's begin with some definitions. The word relationship, we use that word a lot. Relationship simply means this, the way in which two or more people are connected. The state of being connected. So that connected concept, we say a lot, we talk a lot about it. And in our culture today, we would say we're far more connected than we've ever been. Maybe strongly connected, loosely connected, even disconnected. But the idea that we talk about friendships, we talk about relationships in those kinds of terms, the level of connection. What we're really saying about that is the level of trust, the level of familiarity, the level of credibility. Those are other words you could insert in that for that word connection. But that's what we mean when we say that. Social networks are an interesting piece to this whole process. They've dramatically increased our ability to be connected, but I say that kind of uh, in quotes a little bit. It's a unique kind of word because we can literally be around the globe from someone. Like you, I have people on social media that I am connected to via the internet that I am literally around the world from. They're 5,000 miles away, and yet I know what they had for dinner yesterday, Right? And so when we bring that up, the idea is that's an interesting thing because one of the aspects of what social media does is it blurs the lines even more between what constitutes a high level of connection, a high level of friendship. Because what do we do? We call them friends. I don't know that I have 1,800 friends, but my Facebook page says I do. Hmm. That's interesting. It's an interesting 
uh, title for people who, for many, just like I would be guilty of the same, the level of friendship is, I watch what's going on in my feed. And that's about the level to which we're connected. And if I really feel the driving energy to tap that and say, I like it, then they really feel accomplishment. Right? Now, here's what I'm doing. I am in no way, please hear this, I'm in no way bashing social media. Not at all. And for those of you that are connected in certain ways on it related to Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat, uh, any kind of social network, especially for those still on MySpace, right? I want you to to hear me. Um, All I want you to do is I want to ask the question, and we're going to reference this a couple more times. Ask the question, what does friendship look like? What does connection mean to you? Because sometimes it can be a new kind of question we didn't ask before. So let's look today. Look at what the Bible says about how we're connected with God and connected to one another. Number one in your notes, by nature, God is relational. By the very essence and the nature of who God is, God is relational. You're in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything around us, we realize through the book of Genesis, everything that we can see, taste, touch, smell, and even the things that we can't, they originate in the person of God. He is creator. And it would make sense that he would create a universe that would be consistent with who he is and the fact that he is by nature relational. What do I mean by that? Why am I saying that God is relational? Well, all throughout the Bible, former Testament, New Testament, the Bible portrays a God who is three in one. The triunity When we say the word Trinity, even our church is named after such, that's really what the word means. We can often say Trinity very loosely and cavalier and forget its meaning. It literally means three in one, the tri-unity of the Godhead. The Bible portrays this kind of character. Look at what we even say as a church. It's in our church's uh, statement of faith. Read it aloud with me. It says this, we believe in one God, creator of all things, holy infinitely perfect and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now to put that in a church's statement of faith doesn't make it true, but we can show you, we can talk through this idea biblically how this is true. Now we'll we'll say this from the very beginning, it is a true statement that the word triunity, the word trinity itself is not found in scripture. But even though I could give you a catalog of passages, let me just give you three that speak to the essence of this three-in-one nature of God. Up on the screen, Matthew 3, Jesus is to be baptized, and it says, as soon as Jesus, these are bolded for you so you can see the characters, as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, and a voice from heaven said what? This is my son, implying he is what? Father, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. A passage we're going to make much of, especially in the coming series in the fall, but we know it already, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them how? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One verse containing all three within this unique relationship of the Godhead. One God existing in three persons. 
1 Peter chapter 1, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of what? God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Three passages, and literally we could go on and on. My point today is not to make a case for the Trinity, but simply to say this. God exists in perfect harmony, Trinity, in in three and a one. Here's the idea. Here's what this does in the culture that we live in. We believe in a monotheistic God, meaning one God. That's what we keep expressing. It's not three gods, it is one. Yet in our monotheistic, if there are other religious systems in our world, and there are, who have a monotheism, this threeness doesn't jive with anything like what they teach of anything related to their God. Nothing like it at all. And so that creates conflict and confusion. And we're okay with that because the idea is we want to understand what the Bible teaches, and the Bible teaches one God in three. Conversely, there is also a worldview of plenty of religions that are what we call polytheistic, many different types of gods at differing levels. And the thing that when we are talking of this group of people, the threeness of God, the three personalities of God might look like it has connection, but then we talk, but no, 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 but he is one. And there's no place, there's no idea, there's no one of these camps that biblical Christianity fits perfectly because it is its own reality. It is its own teaching. It is this unique character of God that nothing else on earth has tried to figure out something to work like it. One God existing in three. Here's what's so important about that feature for us today. It's not an apologetics talk. It's more of this. From the very beginning, from eternity past, if there is such a thing, God has always lived in relationship and community. Inherent in the fiber of the essence of who God is. In your notes, God didn't create us because he was lonely. He was in perfect community before humanity ever came into being. That's what I really want you to understand today. Sometimes people talk about God creating, God forming humanity because he needed something. He was less than, he wasn't complete So he put humanity into motion, creatures with which he could have relationship. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches about a God who, when you consider his own well-being, as it were, in our economy, the way we would think of God, when is God less stressed if he could be stressed? When is he less concerned about things if he could be anxious? It was far before he ever created creation. The fall has caused all kinds of problems, but God knew from the very beginning Number one, I already exist in perfect community. Secondly, I'm not creating this universe. I'm not creating humanity because I need them. Watch this, but because they need me. Number two in your notes today, God created us to be in relationship with him. God created us to be in relationship with him. The Bible speaks of this idea that because of that God is love and out of God's love, he desires to give himself. He desires to, in a sense, create creatures that are needy and dependent upon him because he loves to give to them. In the creation account, we see this uniqueness related to God's design for humanity. Of all of creation, God made humanity different. He made us with a unique intent. You get, if your Bibles are open to Genesis 1, skip down to verse 26. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, 
over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So what we're saying is this. First off, let's see this again. That was another passage about the triunity of God. Let us create man in our image. A God that doesn't exist already in a three-in-one relationship would never talk about himself in the plural. So right from the very beginning of the Bible, the very first chapter of the Bible, laying a foundation for this three-in-oneness of God, this God who lives already in perfect community, then this God, as he's creating the order of the universe, creates humanity unique, creates you as an image bearer. I don't know if that goes through your head very often. It's a good reminder for me that whenever I encounter another person, whenever I have a connection with another human being, I am talking to, I am listening to, I am looking at an image bearer of God. Every human being, male, female, every human being has value because they bear the image of their creator. That's an important thing to note because it's a slippery slope when we begin to think that some people matter more than others. That some people have value and some don't. The Bible talks very clearly about this image bearer-ness that you have, the person sitting next to you have, the person around the globe today has, unique from all the other created order. And so we were designed uniquely from all these other living things because we bear the image of God like no other thing in creation does. And since our very nature has this image bearerness of God, it suggests that we were made for relationships because we already saw that God is relational. Part of being this image bearer means that we are hardwired from the very beginning to be people of relationship. So what about this God? How does he value us? How does he value a relationship with us? Well, he does even when, even while you were in a state of rebellion, God loved and showed it, showed this kind of love to you. A passage we use often in trying to express how very much we need God and how gracious God has been to us is we talk about this great verse from Romans 5.8. God demonstrates. He doesn't just say it. God shows his love for us in this. While you, while I, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God wasn't waiting for you to get your act together. God wasn't waiting for you to respond to him. God wasn't waiting for you to try harder to be gooder. God wasn't waiting for a religion. He wasn't waiting for any of those things. While we were still sinners... God loved us. Just two verses later, Romans 5, 10, it says, while we were still his enemies, you grew up, you lived life as a human being resulting from the fall as an enemy of God before you responded to his love and forgiveness. That's the way this God loves you. He desires, he deeply longs to be in relationship to you. And what we find, number three today, that's not all. Number three, God created us to be in a relationship with each other. Not only has, is in the very character and nature of God the fact that he's relational, not only the fact that God wants to have this relationship vertically, as it were, with you, but also horizontally, he designed us for relationship with each other. 
consider what we're talking about here at Trinity. We used this analogy a couple weeks ago of the body of Christ, right? From 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul uses the imagery, the illustration of your body functions, multiple parts, multiple um, uh, roles that your body parts fulfill, but it's all connected. You're all one. And Paul uses that analogy to say, so is the church, so are Jesus's followers, variety of roles, but they all are unified as one. Well, as we think about that image, that kind of, that really makes sense really through the lens of serving and connects dots, but think of it maybe also in this way. What would Jesus be doing if he were walking among us today? What would he be doing? What would he be saying? Where would he go with intentionality? Watch this. If those are the things that Jesus would be doing, if those are the things that Jesus would be saying, if those are the places Jesus would be going, so ought we. Why? Because we're his body. We exponentially display, we exponentially say, we exponentially demonstrate his love because we're not contained in one physical body, we are all throughout this globe. And the body of Christ is meant to do the things that Jesus would do if he were here among us, because he is. He is in our relationship to him in the way that we live. So Jesus said that he came to seek and save the lost. When it was really just boiled down, what's your purpose, Jesus? What's your mission to seek and save the lost? Then the rescue of sinners was Jesus's mission, and it's now our mandate. And since we know that the power of relationships is strong, simply what we're saying is harnessing the power of relational influence is important because it's so effective. We've talked about this phrase being an intentional influencer. An intentional influencer is by nature, it's all about the power of relationship. That's all it is, is it's harnessing that reality. We believe that there are people in your life that you are supernaturally and strategically connected to. We call it your relational world. And I love thinking of a relational world like concentric circles. It begins with those that you live under the same roof. And then it extends out to maybe people that you go to school with or people that you're on the job with, neighbors next door, people you're on a club team with, people that you um, associate with, your extended family, whatever the, the list grows. But these concentric circles are your relational world. And they're not 300 people. They're not 1,800 people. They tend to be about 10 or 12. I should really do life with who really know you and watch this, who you have relational credibility with. It really hit me like a ton of bricks. I was watching a, a kind of a, a speech, a, a presentation by Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook. And this is what he was talking about. If you've noticed this on Facebook, he was talking about how through a marketing lens, how they've shifted the idea of just simply spamming ads on Facebook. Facebook is not meant to be just a bunch of ads that you just scroll through. If you've ever noticed, sometimes something will show up in your feed and same with Instagram, they'll show up in your feed and you'll see something that says all your friends who've also liked this same thing. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that? And you're wondering, well, that's really odd. I don't care about this thing. I don't care about that deli. I don't care about this quilting store. You know, why is that showing up in my feed, right? Why is this happening? Well, it's because other people that you are connected to via social media have also liked, quote, liked this thing. And there it pops up in your feed because why? Because there is a power of the fact the marketing thought is that because people in your relational world or at least people in your social network like this thing, you're more prone to do so as well. And guess what? They're right. 
Look at this. You've seen this in your Facebook feed before. It's someone who has said this, this one in particular, looking for a new dermatologist. Any good suggestions? I see those in my feed all the time, looking for a plumber, looking for a new dentist in this area, and that pops up. And what are they doing is this. They didn't consult Yelp. They want to know what you think. Because as you begin to write back, as you begin to tell them, well, this is who I go to, or this is who I've incorporated before, they are not only looking at that name, they're not only looking at that business, they're paying attention to who's telling them, that's who I would suggest. Because there is deep credibility in relationships. Now, marketing's harnessing it for that purpose. Here's the great news. This is what we're called on mission to take that same reality, that same credibility and say, God, there are people in my relational world, some who know Jesus that I want to continue to encourage. I want to continue to move forward together following him. There are other people in my relational world who don't follow Jesus, don't know the gospel, or at least haven't responded to it. God, I want to engage my relational credibility. I am by far a perfect example of Jesus, but I am an example of Jesus. And through my life and through my love and through the truth of your word, just like you heard today when Jeannie was sharing what Nicole was saying, she was just speaking scripture over the phone. God, you can use me in other people's lives. That's why we're beginning to amplify every week the amazing influence that you have in the lives of those in your relational world, an influence that God wants to harness and use in other people's lives. And we're gonna share story after story of this same thing, people just taking that seriously and saying, God, I wanna be a person of influence in this life you've already given me. Now, relationships with other people, other created beings are not only important to God, but he gives us direction. He tells us how to engage, how to live according to these communities. The Bible has much to say on the topic of marriage. The Bible has much to say on that relationship, much to say about the relationship between government and citizen, much to say about the the relationship of the local body of the church to one another. The Bible has much to say on that. No, we could spend a lot of time on these. Here's what we're doing this month. We're talking about the relationships that you do community with, the relationships you do life and mission with. What did those look like and what should those be about? This is how I grew up. I grew up at churches that would talk about this concept of relationships and community, and they'd use the word fellowship, right? Anyone grow up in a fellowship church, like the church that talked about fellowship? Okay. Here, here's a fellowship as a kid growing up in church. Fellowship was uh, synonymous or equal to the name of a, a hall, right? After service, we're all going to go down to the fellowship hall and, and watch this and do what? Eat. Exactly. I'm nine years old. What do you think fellowship means to me? Food, right? That's what you do. You eat pie and you sit around and talk. I had no idea. I seriously had no idea what the word fellowship meant. And it was years later, literally decades later, I'm a youth pastor. I'm reading a book on youth ministry and very just plain and simple. The author says fellowship, you know, where you do the one another's. I thought I meant pie in a room. What do you mean the one? What is that? 
And I began to research, I began to read what he was saying, and I realized this is what I had missed that whole time. This is the biblical notion of fellowship. It's a community in which you live out and demonstrate the one another's. Let me show you what I mean. The Bible talks about in the New Testament, no fewer than 17 times, they're in your notes, 17 times of how we should live toward one another. Now watch this, by the way. None of these, not a single one of these is a suggestion. Every single one of them is an imperative verb. Not simply giving you a good idea, but simply saying, this is how you are to act in community with one another like this. The first one, be devoted to one another from Romans 12.10. In our notes, I didn't have a chance to give you every verse, but guaranteed you look up every single reference, you're going to see it there as plain as day. There's no paraphrasing on my part. It literally says, be devoted to one another. By the way, a great example of this. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was here at a memorial service at Trinity Church, and we were there for Elliot Lentz. Elliot passed away a few weeks ago, and we were there. And I was so profound I was telling his family members, I don't think I've ever seen in a memorial service someone so deeply impact his grandchildren. One after the other. They just kept getting up and talking about how their grandfather had been so instrumental in their lives. It was so powerful. But the other takeaway that I had as I was at this service was when his small group came up. And that's what I just said, his whole small group. It was Ray and Sandy Foster. They're giving leadership to that small group. But Ray got up, but he wasn't just with Sandy. It was five other couples. They all got up. All these people got up, up on stage. Some were singles, some were couples. They all got up on stage. And Ray just began to say, Elliot and his wife, we love them so much. They loved us. We have been doing life and mission together for the last 15 years. It is going to be really hard to start back together in September knowing they won't be with us. That's what that means. Be devoted to one another. Go the distance with one another. Don't give up on one another. Here are a few others. Honor one another from also that same verse. Accept one another from Romans 15. Greet one another. Romans 16, serve one another. Galatians 5, bear with one another from Ephesians 4. Those words mean exactly what they sound like. You are so challenging. (laughs) But I'm not giving up on you. And I'm going to bear through it. It's exactly what it means. Be kind to one another from Ephesians 4. Be compassionate to one another. Submit to one another. Ephesians 5, that verse sets up all the different relationships within that there is a built-in authority and submission in marriage and raising kids in the workplace. Forgive one another, Colossians 3. Teach and admonish one another. Encourage one another. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That word spur means exactly what you think it is. Those metal things you wear when you ride a horse and you want it to go, you give it a swift kick. Spur, be that force, that even that agitator that pushes people toward love and good deeds. Love one another. Offer hospitality to one another. Be humble toward one another. Pray for one another. These are 17 one another's imperative verbs, commands, directives that you and I are to consistently be living out. And this is the thing I just want you to see. This is not a guilt trip. And by the way, there's no small group that Trinity Church offers that does all 17 of these every time you meet. 
And by the way, if you're a part of a small group, and if you're wondering sometimes what should we be doing, you've got a pretty good list. Some of you will say this. Some of you will say, well, Todd, that's what I do when I come to a weekend worship service. I, I engage in, quote, fellowship. And I'm wondering if all you do is eat pie. Because here's the deal. We, we actually, force is a strong word. We largely encourage you to turn around and say hello to people for 30 seconds. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you, I've got a 17 check. You're doing the greet one another awesome. But if you're going to tell me, Todd, I live out these other 16 on a consistent basis here on Sunday mornings, I'm going to tell you, I think you're wrong. You need a community. You need a group of people that you do life and mission with. You need a group of people where you can live out the one another. Simple question in your notes. Where do you engage the one another's? If you're not in a small group, if you're not in one of those places, that sequence of relationships, where do you engage the one another's? And I know, like I said, we won't go into it today. You have a laundry list of why you haven't done this as of yet. But I want to encourage you, not because you feel a certain way, not because I'm persuasive, simply because of the bulk of Scripture says, be in a community where you can live this way toward one another. And by the way, if one of the reasons that you are very deathly afraid of getting into a small group is because you've been burned before, can I remind you that one of the one, of the one another's was forgive. Forgive one another and move forward. Today we have this small group expo. You're going to have 10 minutes before you need to pick up any of your kids. It's right out there on the plaza under the pavilion. I just want to encourage you, get involved. Join a community you can belong to. Join a community you can do the one another's with. And if you're here today and you said, Todd, we're already in a small group. Many of you are. That's awesome. Would you also, though, still wait till 1045 to pick up your kids? Because that'll really help our kids' ministries. Let me pray, and I'm going to let you go. Father God, you are good your love endures forever. Thank you for your love demonstrated to Jenny at a time when she needed it so badly. And thank you for the way she responded to your truth. God, for us, thank you that she had a friend. She had someone who was doing the one another's. She was, quote, spurring her on to love and good deeds, to make good decisions, to follow you, even though it was hard, it was challenging to speak the truth. But God, she did it in love. I thank you for Nicole being that faithful friend to her. And God, we all need those kind of friendships. God, we all need to be those kinds of friends to others in our lives. Help us to be a group of people who are willing to go there, who are willing to live out your design for our lives in community with others. We thank you so much. You are so good to us. And we pray in Jesus' great name, amen. Hey, have a great time out at the expo. If you need prayer this morning, Bill and myself will be down front. Otherwise, we'll see you next Sunday.